Hello, and welcome to Meta Perspective with Matt and Andy, the show exploring how to think, act, and be in an uncertain and complex world. This is episode number four. Whether this is your first time listening or you're returning to the show, it's great to have you here as a fellow traveller as this conversational journey unfolds. So where did we get to last time? And what's coming up on this episode? Well, building off of the idea that the relationship between us as individuals and our environment is intimately connected and ultimately reciprocal, meaning that one influences the other and vice versa. Last time we looked specifically at the arena, a term that we've been using for the world we find ourselves in and the way it's organized and structured. We dove into how echoes of the industrial age still reverberate around our arena today and how its legacy continues to shape and influence us. We got to this idea that this legacy mindset, this perspective that we've inherited, tends to strip out the human story and replace it with objects, numbers and things, rather than seeing the whole picture holistically. We ended with a question to ponder over. What might be some of the other legacy mindsets that still shape and influence us today? If the last episode was all about knowing the arena, this episode is all about knowing ourselves as individuals, as agents, the term we're using to describe the individual as we explore the psychological aspects of being in an ever-shifting, rapidly changing world and the effects that has on us and on our sense of self. As we've moved from an agricultural to an industrial and now to an informational arena, how is it shaping the way we see ourselves and our identity? And how do we find a sense of meaning and purpose within it? We're going to look into these things and explore how we might be able to strengthen our agency and our sovereignty, our ability to act in the world within the moment in which we all find ourselves. Okay, let's jump into the episode. As always, if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email to hello at metaperspective.io, all one word. Andy and I would love to hear from you. Okay, let's begin. One of the things that I like about the show is trying to condense and summarize what we were talking about the time before. And I think two episodes ago or two shows ago, we were talking about what is the agent and what is the arena. And then in our last episode, we were talking about how has that arena been formed? What has led to our current environment, our current society, the ways we interact with our environment and society? And looking closely at something along the lines of industrial thinking and thinking, okay, well, what has been the legacy of industrial thinking and of the industrial age? And how is that influencing society today? And where we left things was we're in a shifting, changing environment. And when we talk about an arena, we're really talking about our environment that we find ourselves in. And this idea that it's shifting is really interesting. So right now we find ourselves in an arena which is unstable and uncertain. And what we wanted to talk about this time around was what are the psychological aspects of a changing, shifting world? And how can we look at that and how can we navigate a world which is shifting and changing from this old industrial way of looking at the world to this new kind of information age, which we're still not quite sure how to define. But that's kind of in summary where we've been going on our last conversations. So maybe, Andy, we can take off from there. Yes, that's a great summary. I think one of the 
interesting conclusions we were getting in our conversation last time was the degree to which the arena, as we were exploring it, which is inhabited by a number of institutions, whether that's capitalism and organizations who make stuff and do stuff, or the institutions that we might think of as government and civil society. But there was a a kind of underlying source code that was running inside of them that was driven by a particular philosophy and ideology drawn out and driven out of the industrial age thinking, which was around growth, around efficiency, around metrics. And that's been incredibly powerful as a means of increasing our ability to build stuff and do stuff. But one of the things that was absent, I think, or at least a second order priority was the degree to which as we built out our institutions and capitalism writ large, to what degree was that truly in service of us as individuals and a collective? And is it not the case that the many crises we see bursting out in the world is a result of a kind of decoupling of where institutions are taking us, i.e. where the arena is and us feeling increasingly estranged or alienated from the very arena that we inhabit. (laughs) And we've explored many reasons for that. So I think it's really important today that we do focus on perhaps the agent side and look at some of these possible reasons why the world that we're building around us seems to be spiraling a little bit out of control. We feel alienated from it. There are rising levels of mental health problems in the developed and developing world, Uh, a a general sense when we look forward, we don't look forward to the future with awe and wonder at what's coming. There's a sense of fear, trepidation, our arts are paying back to us films and TV series that are full of dystopian visions. There's a sense that what we're building and what we're coupled to is not taking us to a good place. And it would be really great, I think, in this conversation to explore what is it to be human? If we're going to have this in service of us individually and collectively, we we need to take a little bit of a rain check of like, what does a good life mean? And what could be a fruitful and flourishing life? And if we're to think about the future of our agent arena relationship. We need to understand the essential needs or the constraints of the agent so that the arena doesn't run it away from itself in such a way that, as we could probably see around us now, that the crises are unfolding because of that decoupling. So I think that would be a, a kind of follow-on from what you've said and a justification why this conversation, I think, is so important. Yeah, and I think overall the idea is to bring a level of awareness to what is happening and this evolution of one arena into another because we're kind of on autopilot. The way that we're engaging and participating in the world around us has been one where we've been a lot of the time sleepwalking into a new world with a new set of rules that are governed by forces that we don't really understand. And I think there are lots of reasons for that, but looking deeply into how we as agents, we as humans interact with that arena and perhaps why we feel this sense of disorientation and disenfranchisement is going to be really useful for us because once we can understand that, 
and we can think about that more deeply, that will also inform how we're able to act and interact with the new arena that is forming around us. Yes, I agree. And one interesting and fruitful area, I think, for us to explore is one of the things that came out of the the scientific revolution. We've talked about some of this in our previous episodes, but the sense in which our world was deeply inhabited by a a spirituality or a metaphysics that had the world as God's creation and our place within it was determined by our creation and our role in living and acting out that which was under the auspices of a divine creator. We moved away from that mode of thinking about life and existence to one that was very much oriented now towards science and the ability to explain the world, the ability to, through our, and certainly accelerated through the Industrial Revolution, the ability through our emerging tools to change the world, to kind of build the world as man would want it. And this orientation towards the physical world, the materiality, the ability through science to identify, to measure, to account for things, to explain things that then gave us the tools and the powers to build ever greater tools, institutions. This sort of third-person materialistic view of life was extremely powerful, but what it did is started to devalue the first-person subjectivity, the internal. What does it feel like? What is important to us as individual conscious creatures? Our conscious lives, our spiritual lives, were increasingly kind of pushed to the margins as we focused on what we could build in the world out there. And so I think one of the interesting moments in history we are in now is that it's causing us to think more deeply about what is it to be human? What other needs do we have that aren't being addressed or accounted for in the world that we're building? And so this kind of exploration of what it is to be a conscious agent, what it is to have hopes, dreams, fears, what it is to to desire to fulfill. We've been talking about in-service. I mean, are they even accounted for in science? It's almost impossible. And this, as we talked about, and I think one of our previous episodes was brilliantly articulated by Hume, who drew out this is-ought distinction. And I think this lies at the crux of this conversation, which is what is the world of science can tell us. It can measure it. We can determine things. We can build things. We can do things in the world. And science gives us the tools and the language and the frameworks to get a grip on that and be able to do that ever better. But what ought we to do in our individual lives? What ought we to do to build a better arena? Those are questions that science can't really get a grip on. Those are ones that come down to our morals and our ethics and what we value. And these questions are much more of the experience of what it is to be human, what it is that we value, what it is that we would like to see and feel and be in the world. And this part of the equation, I think, is one that's been missing 
and now needs to come to the fore as we think about how we sculpt the arena in such a way that that element of ourselves that can truly feel and realize itself through this individual and societal flourishing can get a grip on and start to steer this agent arena relationship. One of the things that I find quite interesting tying it into industrial thinking and the way that our arena has evolved since then is that prior to that people had rich interior lives everything was imbued with meaning and when the scientific revolution obviously the industrial revolution came along that was negated as you mentioned and we've gone through this period of withdrawal from ourselves and neglect of our interior one of the questions that comes to my mind is where does that responsibility lie to reconnect with that sense of richness of yourself and understanding of yourself? Does it have to come from within you and in the way that you connect with the world? Or does it need to come from society and the arena? And I think based on our previous conversations, the answer is that they're both deeply Mm. interconnected. And when you were mentioning about how we're viewing the world in this kind of mechanized way, and from a metaphysical perspective, the kind of notion of the times was there's this God that has put everything in place. What I see when I think about that is actually people were projecting this mechanistic worldview onto their idea of what God could be. Because from the Industrial Revolution onwards, people were really considering God as kind of like a watchmaker. They thought that the way that the planets moved, the way that the world operated was mechanistic. And that's how they perceived the source of being. And it led to us looking through that metaphor at ourselves and saying, okay, Well, if this is all mechanistic and this is the way that things are governed, therefore we are in some sense also machines. And you can see that being kind of influenced through the culture, through literature of the times, through the way that we were creating art. There's loads of ways that all of a sudden this metaphor through the tools we had created began to be projected onto how we were making sense of the world. And I think we mentioned before, there was obviously reasons why looking at things in a mechanistic fashion was useful and it produced results that were unimaginable to the people that led them. So there was confidence in the idea of looking at things in this way. But as a result of looking at the world through this metaphor of a machine where you can extract value from things around you, we lost touch with and withdrew from ourselves. Where my mind goes when I say this to you is, it's almost as if we create tools and ways of being And we use those to create metaphors that we project onto our environment and onto our own nature to make sense of it. So from an industrial way of thinking, you've got this idea of you're a cog in the machine. All of these things are used to kind of represent what we are because it's how we were making sense of ourselves through our own tools. Now we're shifting into this kind of information age and all of a sudden we're using this metaphor of information to try and make sense of our world. So you'll hear things like, we've already mentioned source code, Mm. what's our operating system, what's our software. And I think a lot of people now are going to use the next age, next arena to build sense of what's going on around them. So I think what's really interesting is how we use metaphors as a vehicle for making sense of our environment. That's a brilliant point and very eloquently explained. And it's probably... Yeah, just developing that line of thinking that you've got, taking it back in history, because we're talking about a way of being and seeing things in mechanized and increasingly information-based ways. As we talked before, the arena we create then shapes us. 
which then leads to us shaping it again. And we're in this dance of this cycle that's gone from mechanistic more to informational. But it's worth chasing that back in history because I think there's always something interesting to consider around the evolution of our psychology and where this capacity to think in this way comes from. And if you take the idea that the human race are all pre-human, if we go back even further, maybe a couple of million years at least that we've been gathering around campfires and, and existing in tribes. We didn't have science then. We didn't have machines. We didn't have information in the way that we see now. So it was very difficult to explain anything in the world through what we might recognize as science today. The world or nature probably to us worked in mysterious ways. There were patterns, there were cycles, there were the seasons, night and dark, and the sun would rise and then it would set. And we were very much embedded in an environment that seemed to have properties that was alive in the sense that it could offer us richness and nutrition, or it could take from us through famine and animals that could kill us. And in order to make sense of a world without science, we had to basically be able to observe certain experiences that repeat themselves that we could name, that became a form of symbol, that became a, a, eventually a kind of language of which we could share with each other to help collectively make sense, explain, predict, tell stories of what happened in the past that we could learn from the future. And those were largely drawn out of nature, which seemed to have certain powers that could either give to us or take away from us. And out of those stories arose the sense that there were powers beyond us and the proto-gods and the original early religions often have multiple gods that would sort of embody these forces beyond our control. And the ability to tell stories became a, a way of passing knowledge to each other, both within any tribe and also handing the wisdom down from the previous generations to the next generation. So stories, myths, uh, tightly interwoven into culture and how we saw ourselves and how we saw the much narrower, more natural arenas that we inhabited in those days. And this meaning-making, some people call them psychotechnologies, are deeply rooted, I think, now in our psychology, the sense that we try to take the forces that are without, that seem to shape our lives. We create a, a language that describes them. We create a, a mythology, a story about how these forces are at work, and then we use those to define our world and our place in it. We are cogs in the machine, as you said. Or lots of people would talk about cashing out ideas. It's the sense in which you know, the very act of money and capitalism is now seen as, as a way of explaining how we think. So this is a really interesting way in which we're starting to get to how we make sense and how our sense-making is coupled deeply to the environment that we're creating. But I come back to this point that I think you were echoing as well, that as we become more powerful in shaping the world around us to our own benefit, abstracting us from a dependency on nature to sort of create our own worlds and our own institutions, uh, our own creations, we've increasingly used the stuff out there 
as the justification for what we're doing without really understanding the interiority. How do we feel about this? Can we see ourselves in what we're building? Is what we're building around us sensitive about us as individuals? Or is there some part of us that we have to cut short or avoid or suppress such that we can fully participate in this more mechanized, industrialized, and now increasingly information-based world that we inhabit? And is it leaving us somewhat empty and anxious because we can't truly feel our full selves in the world that we've created? And I think there's quite a lot of truth to that. Yeah, and I think it makes people question, what are we doing? Like, What are we building? Why are we progressing? What are we progressing to? Because all of these questions that come from this this world that we're sleepwalking into without really evaluating. And all of a sudden, I think, especially since the pandemic came about, we've started to look at things and say, well, hang on a second, why? Things don't have to be the way that they always have been. And this event has kind of shaken us up to the fact that we don't have to just simply go along with the way things always have been. And I think this opportunity to kind of confront our inner selves and take a look and say, well, what is fulfilling? And what isn't and what was I just doing on autopilot is such an important place for us to be right now. And it's essential because the world you were describing of, let's say, olden times, there was no disconnection between the metaphysical world and our our reality. The way that people were in tune with the seasons and the way that they would gather food and the way that they would interact with people was really tightly intertwined with the way that they saw their their religious worldview and everything was imbued with so much meaning and i think what's happened in the arena within which we exist today there is a massive separation of those two things there's no longer a connection between the meaningful rich inner life that you can lead in a world without the material and there's just the material world. And it doesn't seem to be a way across the, the two. It's either you're a machine or you're a, a robot that can be programmed if we're looking at the kind of informational metaphors. The other thing I wanted to say about the informational metaphors is if we're talking about source code, if we're talking about software, if we're talking about all these things, what we're really telling ourselves is that we can be programmed or deprogrammed. Mm. And we've been using these words because they're very useful for mm. us explaining the world today. But then when you're telling yourself, things about being a machine and obviously you're devaluing your humanity when you're talking about society as software then you're talking about things that can be manipulated at will so we have to be so so cautious about the way that we're talking about the world and how we see it because it's basically shining a mirror straight back onto us which is informing mm. how we act exactly exactly and i know we've both read something about if not his books owen barfield who had something really interesting to say about this in terms of what he called an evolution of consciousness, that, as, as you were exactly saying, being embedded deeply within the world, participating fully inside a felt sense of being in the world, can be sort of archaeologically retrieved by how people use language. Because one of the things that Barfield talks about, and you know, we've talked about this before, is this interesting Greek word, pneuma, which uh, in the old Greek versions of the Bible often appears multiple times to mean different things. And modern language now distinguishes between this, but the idea of breath, of wind, and spirit. Pneuma was a Greek word that meant all of those things. And essentially, 
in the use of that word, Barfield was able to show that it's almost as though the spirit moved through the trees. You could hear the spirit rustling in the trees. And as you inhaled, the spirit would enter into you and you would inhale the spirit of the world. And you can imagine if that's what you thought and felt, your embodied sense of being in something, not separate from it, was a very different way of feeling about what life was and how life was experienced. And of course, the breath of life, that when people died and they no longer breathed, it's like the spirit had left them. And this way of coupling oneself in a very participatory world. You were distinct, but you were also part of something bigger. You were coupled inside as part of a whole. It was a felt sense of, deep sense of participating in something. And of course, one of the facets of the scientific language and the death of religion and all those other things is to render everything as objects. So the heavens became stars that could be... uh, through astronomy and cosmic physics, you could understand what they are and their speed through the galaxy. The nature itself was classified and turned mm-hmm. into things. Even our body has been broken down into something akin to sort of meat and molecules. And then more recently, our own mind, what might be called our soul, has been increasingly turned into neurons and areas lit up by various brain experiments. With sort of rendering everything in the world and of us as objects to be compartmentalized and fragmented out. Where is the human? Where is me in this story? I'm left grasping at the exploding, fragmented pieces of knowledge that we've created through science, but there's no account of me. What does it all mean to me? How should I wake up in the morning and live? How should I think about who I am or what I do? in this sort of fractal world of knowledge that has no account of me and where I sit in it. And I think that is part of why Barfield and others have talked about the importance of art, the importance of being able to speak to the meaning beyond through through metaphor, through the tools that art give us to see what lies the other side of the veil, to get a glimpse of what really matters. This is where art's so good at synthesizing and bringing together at our personal level. I think one of the other things, and this is where I'll bring a little bit my own experience into that, which is also an alienating feature, is a long time ago, people would have lived in small communities where they knew each other. And so it was a sense of who I am, my place in a society or in a, in a tribe, and what value I bring and what value others bring. There was a much thicker sense of of identity. People knew you and knew who you were and where you came from and what you were capable of. But as the Industrial Revolution took hold and people gravitated to the city en masse, we are now faced a situation where if we live in cities, as uh, I do here in London, we walk out and there's a myriad of people flowing past. I don't know who they are. They don't know who I am. So how do we relate to each other in a world where there's just no time or no possibility to truly know each other? What's really interesting to see is that we've gone from perhaps more of a honour-based culture, which would reflect our, our virtues and our behaviours, and people would know us for who we are and how we act, to ones where 
people have to judge us in a second. So rather than the internal world being something I nourish and nurture to find my place in the world, it's my external appearance that now becomes the signifier of who I am. And of course, that's led to the rise of fashion and the way we look, the clothes, the makeup, the the status and, and the identity which we seek to build for ourselves is increasingly moved to the exterior and less from the interior. And it was, for me, really interesting to see this coming from a small little market town in, in Yorkshire <laughs> back in the day, coming down to London, where I'd been used to growing up in an environment where Everyone would say hello in the streets. Your neighbours would walk in and out of each other's houses without having to need to knock on the door. You know, with a <laughs> complete trust to an environment where there were just thousands and thousands of people that I didn't know and a concrete jungle that seemed to go on forever. And there was a definite rupture in my sense of self, a kind of feeling of alienation, a feeling of being less connected to people that I had to adjust to. And obviously, as a student, you find your own community and you build that. But to be out and about felt a very different experience to the one I was brought up in a small village. So I think a combination of us externalizing both an account of the world and what matters and also our relationships to each other being possibly in many cases less rich because we don't live in small communities we we live in more and more larger communities has contributed step by step by a progressive sense of alienation from each other as well as the world i know that there's probably some pushbacks on that but i think there's a case to be made here that that might be part of what we're feeling and experiencing and there's something really interesting about human beings. If you look at almost any other animal in the animal kingdom, when I say a baby giraffe is born, within 10 or 15 minutes, it'd be up on its feet, running along beside its mother. You look at a a human infant, and it's pretty much helpless for the first year. So there are a lot of scientists who say this is quite interesting, because coupled with that, we also see that the brain inside a baby is massively connected And what happens in the first year, first couple of years, is a kind of pruning of brain connections. So if you couple those things together, there's some really interesting theories saying because humans have evolved in a way that has taken them away from their, maybe the the savannas of Africa to places around the world and more complex societies, there's a sense in which humans are born into an environment which they need to learn where they've been born and to be able to adapt quite quickly to a context which they find themselves, whereas other animals will be used to inhabiting a particular sort of context. Humans can find themselves in vastly different physical places on the earth, whether it's temperature or or access to water or vastly different social environments. So there's almost a sense in which babies are born in a helpless state, almost too early, if you like, in such that they can be exposed to an environment that allows their brain to prune itself, almost tune itself to where in the world have I popped out? (laughs) And how do I tune myself for my journey of life? What I find really interesting about a child and the way that their neurons are being pruned to adapt 
it made me realize something we've been talking about, which is we are very adaptive creatures. We are very adaptive as a species. And as individuals, we can adapt to certain things, but we can also maladapt to certain things. And I think one of the things that we've been trying to get to in our conversations is what is it that we are maladapted to in society right now? What is it that we've attached ourselves to, which is changing us in ways that we shouldn't be changing in? Mm. And what are the ways in which the world we're in right now is suited to us as human beings? Because a great example right now is we're both talking to each other through a screen. We're sitting at desks. And we are adapting our bodies to be very, very competent sitters because your body wants to adapt to the environment that you're in. But that environment isn't suited to the life of a human, to human flourishing. And if you take that small analogy of just becoming adapted to a sitting position, you know, you get slightly rounded shoulders, a hunched back. Over time, you'll have problems with your wrist potentially. That is a form of maladaption, but on a really big scale in society, There are lots and lots of things that we have become maladapted to that we're not aware of. And I think in our last conversations, we've kind of been hinting at that through different ways of speaking. So this idea that we are dynamically coupled to our arena and that the agent is influenced by the arena. Another way of talking about that is we are actually very adaptive. We're very, very successful at adapting and we have to be extremely cautious about what we're adapting to. And the problem that we have is this is happening in so many different ways all over the arena. And it's so hard to figure out what are the effects of that. Just the difference between the way that you were brought up and the way that I was brought up. I remember I was brought up with the dial-up tone of the internet, essentially. So I think when I was about 12, that must have been, or maybe a little bit younger, that was the thing. You know, you'd wait for the internet to load on your screen. You'd hear the the dial-up tone. And I got my first phone when I was pretty young. And I have no idea how television, how technology has maladapted me or made me or shaped me in certain ways. Whereas your experience will be completely different to that. And a child today coming into the world with the technology that we've created has got so many other challenges, which is why this conversation feels so necessary because it's, mm. it's yes, our arena is shaping us. And yes, as agents, we have a bit the ability to change that, but we have to bring awareness to it because the, the level of optimism I have is in the fact that if we bring awareness to what we're adapting to and how our arena and our environment is changing us we have the ability within ourselves to make conscious decisions to opt out of the things that change us you and i have the ability after this podcast to get up to go for a walk to do some stretching to go to the gym because we're aware of the effects that this can have if you're sitting down at a desk all day and i think that that one very small example needs to be replicated across all of the different stratums in our society and say well what are we individually adapting to that could be potentially harmful and what are we doing as a society? And I think that's really the place that I feel like we want to get to in these conversations. Like, well, why are we adapting to this? Like what have been the effects of that? Yeah. A couple of things that sprung to mind as you were talking there. One is you bringing home the very kind of different experience that maybe a kid having being brought up today would have from how you were brought up and me being older than you <laughs> start to feel old now. My experience of growing up were very different to yours. I I remember when I was growing up, I think there were 
maybe two or three channels on the TV, if you were lucky. It was black and white. For a couple of years, my father decided we don't need a TV and got rid of it. So we had no TV, no internet, no mobile phones, none of that sort of stuff. So the idea that something would entertain you or you you could pick up some portal into the wider world that just didn't exist. You had to create through your own imagination the things that would entertain you. So you would build things and make things and go out and play in the fields. And it was a very rich kind of world of creativity and imagination and coupling deeply with your friends because you'd spent most of your time with them. And then coming to London is a shocking experience in many ways. Not only was it like a massive city compared with a small market town, but again, there was no internet, no mobile phone, no form of communication. I used to walk around the streets of London clutching my A to Z, absolutely scared, witless, that if I lost it, I would disappear into a concrete jungle never to come out, like some concrete matrix that I would be lost in forever. No connection to my family or my friends, other than a a a once-a-week phone call. How do you sustain yourself in that level of isolation? It was through letters sometimes, but often through music. It was music that I found was the connecting link to my other world that I could bring with me if it was listening to my cassettes or playing my guitar. There was something of the old world I could bring into the new world and relate to. But a completely different experience to to one now. A Google guy was telling me the other day that we've now got a generation that will never know what it feels like to be lost. That whole feeling of being lost is probably... <laughs> in history now, because you know, we've all got device with GPS and all the rest of it, which is you know a huge change. But this thing about adapting, I think, is really, really important. And how do we adapt? How do we adapt well? And what, what are the risks of maladaption? I, I think a really core to this co-evolution of the agent and arena. And one that I think is perhaps worth exploring a little bit further. Yeah, this is the crux of it for me. Bringing awareness, not just for ourselves, but for anyone that's considering what are we doing? Why are we doing it? What's going on in our arena? How can we change our environment so that we can live more meaningful lives? I think that's got to be one of the core things that we want to achieve when we're discussing this world. And in the last conversation we had, I remember saying about this idea of extraction and how we're building new arenas that extract us out of the old ones, which is kind of strange. It's like, okay, originally with the world, we were fully immersed within nature. Then we built this kind of new arena to escape the difficulties and the suffering that exists within nature. And we set up that industrial world which brought great successes. And now we're kind of constructing the digital arena, this new world, and we're escaping into it. And we haven't stopped really to evaluate why and what are we going to lose? And I think that's the discussion which is worth having. What are we going to lose by doing that? If everything is online, if everything's digital, and we're no longer in these small communities growing food from the land, really connecting to our natural environment, what are the effects? And I think it's really, really difficult for us to know for certain. 
what the effects are. And you were mentioning growing up without technology, even that experience alone is something that for me, it's hard to comprehend. I actually regard myself as very fortunate being one of the last generations to at least have some semblance of a non-technological childhood. Obviously, television was there, but at least the internet didn't arise until I was almost into my teens. But I, I had this kind of realization that for myself, I haven't been without a phone for such a big part of my life. I mean, I've had a phone for more of my life than I haven't, you know, which is really strange. So I do remember last year, I decided to give up a digital phone at least for 30 days. So I had just like an old Nokia phone, you know, one that can only send texts and messages. And it was transformative in a way. 30 days without the ability to use a map application, for example, and thinking, okay, well, if I get lost, what am I going to do? Having that feeling of being lost came back. But also I think the most profound part of giving up a phone for that length of time was when I was out in social settings. So let's say I was out with a friend and my friend needed to pop to the loo or something like that. My instinct was to naturally grab my phone. I wanted to look at something and distract myself and immerse myself into something that could fire my neurons and give me a, a bit of a dopamine rush. For that 30 days, I was confronted with having to be by myself, be not afraid of being bored and just sitting with myself, but also to observe what was going on around me. And th those two things were really important, observing and feeling that I could participate in my environment was great because you open yourself up to so many random stories to unfold. So many people that can give you a smile or you could start a conversation. I was having a lot more conversations with just random strangers because I wasn't looking into my lap. I wasn't just staring at this little bright screen. So that was really illuminating this idea that if I just don't look at this thing, there's this whole other world around me that mm -hmm. I can access and open myself up to. So that's almost from a societal level. If I'm not looking at this screen, when I'm in a social environment, all of a sudden I'm allowing myself to have access to this completely different world where I can meet new people, chat to other people. I'm not closing myself away and retreating to the digital world. And then the other thing that was really interesting is allowing myself to be bored. Mm. And I don't know how many people today would allow themselves to get bored or even understand the value in being bored. But I personally think, and from my experience of living only 30 days, by the way, it sounds so pathetic, only 30 days. But my experience of only having the capacity to send really difficult texts, because it's not a touchscreen phone, one with the buttons, it takes you about half an hour to send something, <laughs> is that I was alone with my own thoughts. And yes, it felt uncomfortable at times. Yes, it was, you know, frustrating. But that feeling of being bored led to ideas it led to creativity it led to me feeling like I was getting in tune with myself again to the point that when the end of the 30 days came I was actually quite reluctant to extract myself from the arena that I'd magically created you know this little arena bubble that I'd made and go back into the one with my digital tools and I can definitely say this once I did and I went back into the digital world oh my it was so easy to get straight back into old habits, straight back into that world. Now, if I have my phone on me when I'm in a, an environment where I don't need to look at it, I'm pulling that out of my pocket straight away. It just happens so naturally that you go straight back into the arena that you, yeah. you are naturally inhabiting because you have adapted yourself to that, yeah. even unconsciously, but you have. No, exactly. And some really good points you're making there. The thing about attention is really important because the more you think about it, whatever holds your attention is driving what you think. And 
Therefore, if we distract ourselves into you know, whatever grabs our attention, we allow our attention to be grabbed by, is going to drive insight, perception into your brain, which then forms the thoughts and feelings and what have you. So if we're finding ourselves massively distracted by things, it's drawing our attention into what those things want from us. Because as we talked about before, increasingly, especially in a digital world, our screens are often now having an AI work in the other side, pulling our strings, (laughs) trying to get us to read things, see things, um, buy things entertain us in ways to drive time on site. Uh, So our attention can be pulled away by AI playing at our limbic system. But attention in a digital world is also sped up. So it's the idea that we need things faster, quicker, and our ability to stop, to reflect, to think deeply, to ponder and really assess things at a deeper, more profound level is often compromised because we have this sort of dopamine need to go and get our next hit or to check the next notification or check our phone again. I think the average now is several hundred times a day each of us check our phone. (laughs) Several hundred, right? And we know it takes at least 10 or 15 minutes to get into the flow. So there's never any time to get in the flow of anything because we're always checking something. And what what that leads is what you, you rightly say is that many of the behaviors that we find ourselves drawn into by the arena as it's now constructed become routines they become habits they become things that are like second nature we don't even stop to ask why are we doing this why am i spending so much time doing this why am i living my life in this particular way why have i find my life unfurling in a particular sort of journey and i think one of the great things about if there are any <laughs> about the covid pandemic is this especially the first lockdown, was the sense that we had to get off that hamster wheel and actually go, oh my God, there are other things in life beyond the routines and habits that I was so drawn into that I couldn't see my family, my friends, what really matters. And I'm hoping that this is a societal wake-up moment to the fact that there's more than the habits and routines of our arena (laughs) that we got sucked into. I think another really interesting thing, and this is more a a talk around psychology, is how we form our sense of selves. We talk a little bit about identity and the exterior rather than the interior being something that's much more prevalent in the way that we see and conduct ourselves in social spaces. But there's interesting stuff coming out from psychology around who am I? How do we form our identity? And the role to which things like material possessions or status or jobs or these things, the things from the external world, we internalize to form our sense of ourselves. So my house, my car, my phone, my this, my that, my my branded sunglasses are all things that are, in some sense, an extension of myself, which helps to ground us in a world that feels so unmoored and so fluid and liquid that I don't know who I am. If I've got my possessions, I've got my things, which is often cultivated into a persona you create online as well. I've got these things. I am real. I am grounded. There is a me that I can hold on to in this chaotic, crazy world that I no longer understand. But the danger of that, of course, is that you become defined by your things. 
And where do those things come from? Who says that this particular pair of sunglasses or this particular thing is is a good thing to have? It's the arena (laughs) trying to tell you what is important about being a good you. And there's a sense very much in our modern world that we get drawn into participating in this game of constructing our own identities by what institutions and forces in the arena want from us. And I'm going to open up a little bit to something quite personal. You you talked about stripping yourself from your phone and discovering a space, a a sense of what you might appreciate, perhaps even a a sense of yourself, a self-knowledge that comes from not being hooked into other things, but having your own thoughts and your own ideas to play with. So after I finished university, I formed a rock band. I had dreams of becoming a mega rock star. (laughs) Obviously, it didn't work out because uh, I'm not a mega rock star, but it was great fun while I did it, playing gigs, writing songs and performing live and all the rest of it. Amazing. But there came a moment where the dream had to die. It wasn't going to happen. We'd completely run out of money. And the place where I was living, I was on a sort of short-term rental agreement. And it just happened at the moment that everything went tits up. The landlord came around and said, right, you've got one week, get out, because I've got family coming and they're going to move in, so I need you out. I had absolutely no money. I was too proud to crawl back on my hands and knees back home to the north of England. So cut long story short, I ended up in a squat with some horrible old sleeping bag that I crawled into. I had a one room which was just bare floorboards, nothing else with people in other rooms, usually high on drugs. I I was in like, I was in the lowest of the low. I had one plastic bag with a couple of clothes and a guitar. That's all I had, but no possessions. (laughs) And there I was in this place, wandering out into the street, every day. If I got into conversation, people said, oh, so what do you do? Uh, uh, I'm jobless. You know, where do you go? What do you do? Who are you? What do you have? I mean, all, all the conversations, all the questions that people would seek to try and figure out your identity and who you were. It was an embarrassment. I had nothing. I had no money, no clothes, no job, no, <laughs> no anything. And People's attitude to me was like, oh, who are you? Like, you're weird. And I remember going back in lying at night in my sleeping bag, starting to feel like, who the hell am I? It's like the world was moving on out there. I had no connection pretty much to anyone. I had no things. I didn't even have the clothes from which to go to an interview. <laughs> so I was, I was kind of trapped in my nothingness and there were people losing their heads in the next room doing drugs and and I think it was Nietzsche who said and I could kind of relate to this expression there can come a point in your life where you feel like you're staring into the abyss and the abyss stares back into you and that horrible feeling of sinking of losing that I didn't have anything to hold on to to sustain me this question of self-doubt am I a nothing I have no job I have no clothes I have no nothing I am I a nothing is this what it's come to 
and this horrible feeling of dread, the feeling that I might be psychologically sliding into a, the abyss. And I remember I had to go through an exercise of reflecting on myself, like, who am I for myself? What have I got to hold on in my own conceptualization of myself? Okay, I've got you know, reasonably intelligent. I think I've got a sense of humor. I was reasonably good at sport. I've got this, I've got that. I had to construct my own sense of who I was for myself, for something to hold on to in a place where I felt I was going to slide into the abyss. Looking back, it was the most formative time of my life, even though it was the most scary. I had a friend who also ended up in the same squat who wasn't able to come to terms with this situation. He ended up committing suicide uh, a while later. But this idea of rebuilding yourself for yourself, completely shorn of what the world normally would give you that you would find your identity in. I didn't have those things, only had me. And it was building that sense of who I was and what was separate from me out there in the world that I may come in contact with, I may have. But it's taught me that those are separate. Those are nice to have, but they're not me. I might lose everything. Can I handle that? I think I could now. And it gave me an internal strength that's helped me to navigate the storms and the disappointments that life will throw at you. That when, I, when I've seen some of my friends who've been challenged by life and they haven't been through that period of adversity, not that I would wish this on anyone, there's a the kind of fragility there that makes them more open to being knocked over, knocked off course, un, unable to deal with adversity. And I think for anyone listening to this, one of the fascinating lessons I learned was that when you're confronted with adversity, it feels overwhelming at times. It can be. It feels like, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with it. But if you confront it, if you do confront it, what's drawn out from within you is something you never knew you had. You can draw something deep from within you. And in being able to encounter that adversity and overcome it, you come out the other side stronger than when you went in. And that strength is then something that you can carry with you as an extra source of inspiration and resource to deal with further adversities in your life. So it was a great lesson in stripping back one's own identity to its very core and then being able to rebuild on a much stronger core my sense of who I was. So when I got a... 10 years in BT and da, da, da. often people say, you know, I'm a, I'm a pharmacist or I'm a doctor or I'm a, an accountant and see their whole identity wrapped up in the job they have or the house they have or the things they've got. I see these things now as a blessing that I may have for a period of time, but it's not me. <laughs> these are things that I may borrow or the world gifts me for a while they are not me. I am something deeper and something more internal. And it's worth, I think, anyone taking the time out just to reflect deeply on who are they? Who are they to themselves? If you had to look yourself in the mirror, who are you really? 
you strip away all the things that you've got around you. Who are you to yourself? And from that, exploration will come insight that will give you both a sense of strength of those parts of yourself that you are grateful for and can celebrate and build from. But also, in my own case as well, what are the pieces that aren't so good that I need to work on? Yes, there are things that I could be better on, but now I'm forced to look at those and account for those. But I've got the good piece (laughs) to hold on to as the foundation to give me the strength on this journey to then try and work on the pieces that are not so good. So I I don't know whether deeply personal stories are useful for people, but I myself found it one of the most painful and scary, but one of the most profound periods of my life in terms of getting a sense of who I am, who I really am, in the context of the arena that I find myself in the 21st century. The image that comes to mind as you're talking about strength through adversity is almost this idea of tempering the sword. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So this idea that the, the more you temper the sword, the stronger it becomes. So it's no longer brittle and fragile when you go to battle. You know, you, you want to have a trustworthy sword. You want to be able to go out there and, and feel confident with with life. And the way that you approached your adversity was formative for you. And I think the takeaway that I have from that is how can we confront ourselves and and temper our own swords, make ourselves stronger and also just really confront the things that are worth keeping, but also the things that we need to let go of. And one of the images that always comes to my mind about things to let go of is this idea of a a forest fire. Mm. And I think in the news a lot of the time, especially now, we hear a lot about the destruction of fires in forests, but they're a key Mm. ecological component of our of our environment and through those fires we clear the paths for new vegetation to grow and for new life to occur and i think within all of us there's parts of us that we need to discard and let go and and sacrifice and there are also parts of us which we need to embrace and to hold on to and the way you described not letting your arena dictate how you perceive yourself is a really really valuable lesson particularly because on top of the arena trying to dictate to you how you should be this arena the additional complexity is that it is rapidly rapidly changing so even if you were to couple to what you believe let's say embodies the status of the times and you know a beautiful car a nice house whatever you want to externally define yourself as those things are going to lose meaning rapidly Mm. and they're very transient and even now we're seeing a shift away from people just wanting to get material objects to things that they want to do experientially. So now the kind of in mode and fashion thing is to kind of show your life through a social media account of all of the cool experiences that you can do. And obviously that's going to fall flat as well because you're continually coupling to an external arena that can never validate you. That has to come from within yourself and your rich inner life, which ties into where we started this conversation, which is, we've kind of denied and negated that rich inner life. And we've, to tie this together, we've now attached what we find to have meaning to our external arena rather than reaching in to ourselves to form that. Exactly. And I think nurturing that 
inner part of us and enriching it and feeling that. I think, you know, this is one of the things that's really important that what ultimately means most to us, it's nice to have things, I'm sure it is, but what really matters more, I think, is the feeling that you can go put your head on the pillow saying that I'm living a life that I'm really proud of who I am and what I'm doing and feel deeply good to the core of yourself. And that's about living a life that feels meaningful, but it's also coupled to having meaningful relationships with others, whether it's the depth and richness of your friendships. Going out for a great night with your best friend will give you way more deep joy and feeling than any item of clothing or material possession you can buy on Amazon and give yourself a kind of dopamine hit for a day or two. The depth and richness of your relationship with your significant other, the ability to cultivate the best possible relationships within your family. These things give us deep felt, it's almost a religious, a kind of spiritual sense of happiness that's way, way deeper and more profound. And I told my story, and it's absolutely true that too much adversity can break you. you know, my, my friend ended up committing suicide. So adversity can traumatize us, because if we aren't able to deal with the adversity that we're facing, it can harm us to our very core, and we may carry that with us. So I wouldn't wish on anyone too much more adversity than they can bear and handle. But it relates, I think, very much to this Buddhist concept as well of, of order and chaos. The order, that which I know, that which is part of my everyday, that which is the habits and routines of which I'm familiar. There's something very comforting of staying within that. Uh, and as we've talked earlier in this conversation, I think if one was to reflect deeply on that one could also see that in many cases there are elements in which the arena has programmed us to have these habits and routines and, and be the particular way that we're being. So I think it's really important to kind of step back and reflect on is this truly the life that I find most fulfilling? To what extent am I being led to do these things and be these things? And is it really truly me? But the order chaos thing also brings within it that there are Things that I don't know, things that I can step into, things that I can try out, things that will challenge me. And rather than shying away from those, those are things that we can learn something new from. Because the risk of just staying within your comfort zone, of course, is that any, anything that stays the same starts to decay. Anything that can embrace new nutrients from something new and novel can sustain and nurture and develop us in new ways that we can individually and collectively grow. And one of the themes, I think, from our conversations is as the arena becomes more complex and offers more potential for harm, but also more potential for amazing things, if we aren't individually able to grow, we will not be able to take advantage of that which life could offer us nor will be in the position as active agents in the arena to be able to see the possibilities and shape the arena in a better way for others that we care about. And to this point about 
complexity and overwhelm. I think another way of thinking about this is, and this comes from the kind of stoic tradition, it's another frame of thinking about this, which is it can all seem too much and overbearing and overwhelming. And there's a sense of nihilism, i.e. kind of giving up any hope and we just sort of go with whatever life throws at you, kind of fatalism. And what the Stoics told us is that there are things that are outside of your control. There are things beyond that which I can do anything about. So there's no point in losing one's existential energy and belief in life by focusing on things that are outside of my control, because there are things absolutely in my control that I can do something about. So start there. Start with the things that we could do to improve the way we, whether it's Jordan Peterson's sort of clean my room or improve the place that I live so I can feel better for myself and the ones I share space with. Who are my closest friends and family? What more could I be doing to enrich and cultivate the relationships and spaces that I inhabit? Because in doing that, you will both feel better, make others around you feel better, you make the world a better place. And if some of us are fortunate enough to have influence more widely, then there's the opportunity to take that spirit, take that learning, take that curational capability and start to work in the institutions that we find ourselves in, to start shaping those such that the broader arena itself might benefit from wiser, more heartfelt, more loving ways of building a a better and flourishing world for ourselves and and everyone else. So I I think there are ways through this. There are reasons to be hopeful, but it will require us to shock ourselves out of our, our everyday habits and stupor to reflect and think and act and build. And if that doesn't give us meaning in life, I don't know what does. Especially thinking about it from a stoic perspective with that framework in mind understanding what you can control in your environment and in your life and what you cannot are two just really important things to differentiate. Mm. And once you've done that, being able to consistently work on the things you can control and let go of the things that you can't is a real clear path to attaining tranquility in the sense of feeling at ease and at peace with yourself. I think the thing that I'm interested in considering the the way that our conversation has evolved in this episode is to think about how this applies to the new arena that we find ourselves in and the fact that this arena is constantly evolving and rapidly changing because there are new things emerging now and there are new things to consider in this space. In in the previous way of looking at things, we had this mechanized worldview where we were viewed as machines. In the next world that we're kind of going into I don't want to say created for ourselves because a lot of the time the arena isn't really something that's been consciously shaped and I think that's something that we all need to be really aware of the arena is something that is co-evolving with us and it has its own way of being shaped I don't have to say it's it's not conscious it's almost unconsciously Mm. shaped and we have to be so aware of that and what I'm interested in exploring with you is what is going on there because we had the mechanized worldview which led us to look at ourselves as just material like you said on another episode like these just mm. empty shells these husks mm. these machines that are devoid of soul we're now going into this next kind of environment heavily dominated by technology in terms of 
the informational architecture that we have. So that's the computer age almost, you know, thinking about things in terms of what code you can write. And we were saying earlier on the show, if that is your worldview and that metaphor becomes your way of seeing the world, that is your paradigm for understanding the world. How does that influence your perception of who you are? Do you see yourself as, you know, just bits of software that you need to update, like hardware, firmware, software, malware? Are they the mechanisms, using the word mechanism, which is interesting, Mm -hmm. the mechanisms for understanding yourself today? Because, okay, let me try and interpret what you were talking about with the metaphors of the information age, which would be like, okay, you're running on a certain software. For you to get yourself out of adversity, for you to to thrive, you need to, you know, face that code. You need to look at that operating system and you need to figure out which bits you can iterate upon. How can I go from myself 1.0 to myself 2.0? Where can I level up? Now, all of those ways of speaking about ourselves can be quite informative in the way that we want to navigate this new world. Of course, I think it's extremely useful to talk about source code in terms of how society operates and how we think about ourselves. But I'm also wary of it in the sense that understanding ourselves in that way will have unintended consequences in how we perceive ourselves. And I don't think it captures our full humanity. So I was thinking maybe we could go in that direction. Hmm. Yeah, so let's circle around it because it's a very interesting direction to go <laughs> and a very important one. So I think one of the things I would say is to augment one of the things you were saying earlier about it's not as though our arena is conspiring against us. I think if you would take a vantage point from within any one of the institutions, you might even feel like we're, you know, we're trying to do a good thing. We're offering this, we're doing this, we're providing these kind of services. But one of the interesting facets of this is that when organizations or institutions are running, let's go back to the computer analogy, the source code that has a set of operating principles that are being optimized for something, yes, they can still provide something valuable to humans, but what's driving the very essence of that code is not human flourishing. It's what the institution is optimizing for, for itself, whether it's maximizing profit or whether it's achieving some public sector goal of targets or whatever it might be. And one of the consequences is the collective action of multiple institutions acting in this way creates its own meta impact (laughs) that none of them necessarily signed up for, but becomes the collective output of that. And we were kind of seeing an example of that when we were talking about the information ecology. Everyone's optimizing for time on site and information that can drive selling our predispositions and interests packaged up to advertisers and people who want to sell stuff. And in and of itself, it doesn't look like it's a bad thing, but in optimizing time on site and appealing to our limbic systems, we're being hijacked to look at more outrageous things and more shareable things that outrageous more. So those things get passed through and then we get a breakdown of sense making writ large in society and we all go slightly bonkers. That wasn't designed to be like that. It was this sum total of the collective action of multiple actors trying to do a lesser thing. So 
there's an emergent, if you like, set of consequences that arise out of that that then affects the whole of the arena and impacts back onto the agents themselves. And we as a study got to get wiser to this system's impacts and this system's thinking that we're not just as an institution acting in an isolated process to deliver one thing. We are participating in something that's bigger than us. And I think that's a conscious awareness that's really been thought through or taken into account in how institutions think of what they're doing, that they are contributing potentially to something emergent that arises out of their actions in concert with everyone else. So I just wanted to put that on the table. And that means we are in a more complicated era. We're in an era of systemic, complex, interwoven, compound, emergent effects. We've never had to really think like this before, but we do now. I think the second thing is we're in not just the information age, we're now moving into the machine learning AI age where things are automating and optimizing through machine learning and AI to whatever they're set to optimize to. So services, experiences are evolving and wrapping themselves around us in ever more potentially beneficial ways if they were truly optimizing for our interests and our well-being or they can become even more malevolent and manipulative if they're optimizing for someone else's benefit using a kind of value extraction way of thinking rather than value creation way of thinking and I think this is something we, we need to be increasingly aware of and guard against that individual instances and collectively if the arena becomes AI aware of us and how to extract from us more effectively than it's done before (laughs) we're going to have a very different set of individual and collective outcomes another thing I would put on the table is that one of the things we need to really think about writ large is our capacity to engage deal and maintain our own sovereignty is also impacted where we sit in society. So you could take Maslow's hierarchy of being a, perhaps a, a loose frame for that, that people who are really struggling to have a roof over their heads or feed their kids aren't able to have the time and space and luxury to step back and think about themselves in a stoic way and transform their understanding and counter the increasingly sophisticated ways in which the arena will be looking to manipulate them. They'll have other priorities. So I think there's something, if we were to celebrate our humanity writ large, that especially in first and developing world countries, the fact that we have high levels of poverty and sort of subsistence living is a scandal for any modern civilization. So to be able to lift more people up into a place where they can have even the room and the capacity to think about these things and how they might live a more fruitful life full of more possibilities. I think that we owe that to our civilization, especially in richer countries, to to get on top of that because it does feel like a scandal. And I think this is one of the leftovers from the money-oriented capitalist ways of running the code of society, that there are numbers that drop out the bottom and the machine learning and AI will enable those who can win to win more handsomely and leave more and more people collecting at the bottom. And we've got to do something about that writ large. But I think, you know, coming back to what can we do individually, I think it's 
supremely important for our culture and our society to put at the centre the collective efforts of our economy, our economic actors, our social institutions, our public sector, is in service of improving the lives of individuals and the collective. And we've got to get a richer conversation about what does that actually mean? Because those are nice words. People can sprinkle that over their old world behaviours and claim that they're doing something, but really they're not because we didn't really know what it really meant. And so I think we need to flesh out in a deeper way through a conversation society, what do we mean by living well or flourishing and well-being? And how can we get more specific about that so that we can encourage our institutions to be in service of something that we've more clearly defined. It's not an easy thing to define and it's going to require a kind of conversation and co-creation of people in society to crystallize and bring that up to the surface as something we can agree represents a better way forward. And then the need for all of us to become more aware, I think, of how the arena is increasingly becoming more sophisticated to play us. What are the means by which it is doing this? How is this happening? And what can I do to reflect and understand and take more ownership and sovereignty of myself that I then may be in a position to direct my life in service of a better life than being sort of co-opted by the arena into something that takes away from our sovereignty and autonomy. I think these are really profound questions in history. And I think history will come back and look at this moment as we pivot quite quickly from industrial to information to AI driven and say, where was the human in that story? How well did we put these new superpowers of intelligent technology in service of us rather than we are in service of them and the institutional forces and actors who own them. I think this is a a supremely pivotal moment in history. For sure. And the thing that worries me, again, looking at this through the lens of the information metaphor, this idea of programming and deprogramming and source code is if the ideas of what human flourishing constitutes is only defined by a small group of people that wield the technology, there are unintended consequences that can be put into the world by even the most well-meaning person. Mm. For me, that's just an inevitability that no matter how well-meaning you might be, if you wield technology in a way that makes you think that, okay, if only we did this, we can program people to, to behave like this and do that. I think that's extremely dangerous. My innate response to that is to say, well, rather than it being in the hands of a few people, as agents, as people, as humans that are participating in this world, we need to participate in this arena and we need to encourage more and more and more people to be part of this conversation. It shouldn't be left to a few people. We should be increasing our awareness, understanding our arena, but then finally also participating in it. And one of the really encouraging things about this world that we're in is that it's never been I don't know if I want to say it's never been easier, but we're in a really unique part of history where we can participate in our arena. We can shape it. We can mold it. And we shouldn't just neglect that. We should be wanting to participate and say, hey, well, these are the values that we believe in. This is how we want our society to be run. But it can't just be left in the hands of a few well-meaning, potentially, or 
at worst nefarious players it has to be something that we do collectively but it has to come from us as agents wanting and willing to participate in society yeah you're really right to point that out because one of the interesting features of competition in a digital world is the ability to scale massively potentially to the entire population means that there tends to be uh, everything goes to the winner type of outcome so we've seen you know facebook with billions of users google pretty much tied up the entire search market amazon increasingly dominating and hoovering up the e-commerce world for example so actors who may have claimed or we may have thought of them as simply another competitor in a marketplace are because of this dynamic of winner takes all in the digital market are becoming almost pieces of the infrastructure in the commons and therefore are able to wield huge power when we search what do we get back is whatever google serves up what do we see when we check out our friends and receive information on newsfeed it's curated by ai coming from facebook and we're already seeing as we've discussed before there's a sort of breakdown of society ability to understand itself through the distortion of news and media and, and knowledge itself so there's a question for us writ large because you know very very soon these institutions are going to be bigger than governments and wield huge power not only of themselves but also the power they're able to wield on influencing government itself about how they're regulated these are becoming almost utilities part of the fabric of our world and are they being run in ways that are value creating for society or value extracting and it's probably a bit of both but if the value extracting is to the point where it undermines the ability of us as individuals and in society to prosper because it's serving some other external agenda then that's got to be bad for humanity and we will have to confront this full on but again how we confront it is in part shaped by what we hold to be important what we hold to be valuable what we hold to be the kind of world we would like us to be in and the, the possibilities that gives to us and so we collectively have to come up with a deeper richer account of who we are as human beings and what kind of future we want such that we can start to shape the arena at that meta level as well as the individual level to nudge it and curate it in that kind of direction i think for me as a failsafe to where that could go with large organizations in control of these utilities is to move towards decentralization and that can come through market competition and having viable alternatives because and this is just a general principle like wherever there is centralization of certain tools and certain information or centralization of almost anything you can think of where there is a center that wants to organize the entire infrastructure once that is wielding the power it can wield whether you've got the most well-meaning wonderful people in control of that one 
like I said, there's unintended consequences. But two, you've established a framework that could or is at least open to in some ways being abused in the future. That's nothing to say about the current moment, but as the world becomes more complex and it shifts, if you centralize these things and don't provide alternatives and you don't have a way of opting out or exploring new avenues, those things could get abused. So decentralizing these things and having different alternatives, finding ways to interact with your world is so important. But I think the missing component of that is it's got to come from us. It's got to come from the ground up. The arena isn't going to provide that to you automatically because the arena is almost like a zero-sum game currently. Like you said, the winner takes all. So the arena and the forces that drive it and the economic models that we have, that we build our society upon, lead to centralization naturally yeah like that's what's happening it's not that someone's intentionally trying to do that it's more that our arena is shaping things so that you have technology that can scale at such an ability that the most efficient and the best service obviously are always going to come out on top but we need to temper that with having alternatives decentralizing and not just having all the power in just one or two organizations we need to make sure that we are building the next tools and technologies and we are providing that but it comes from us it doesn't come from the top down it comes from the bottom up i think i certainly think that having options and choices and more competition will taper down the potential for any one actor to wholly dominate a space and for malevolent or unintentional reasons create harm to the commons I think in the digital space, there are certain types of things where that becomes difficult. So things like search will always be better the more data you've got. (laughs) And the richer you are and the more you're able to develop your AI algorithms, you're going to get better and better. So there is a tendency which the winner wins everything. So unless you carve search up (laughs) in some yet-to-be-determined ways, that becomes quite tricky to do. There's a question then about whether do you, it's hard to nationalize a, a global company, like which nation would be nationalizing it. But the, the sense in which could certain utility functions that play such an important part in our lives be moved to a different kind of model uh, where they're run by the people, for the people, in service of the people that doesn't have an agenda that's outside and separate from the well-being of the people. Difficult to think what those might be, but we need to start thinking about this because one of the things that's quite clear today is that the sophistication of these business models and the technology in it means that they're always one step ahead of the regulators. And we've seen the many embarrassing attempts of uh, execs to deal with cross-examination by American politicians and It's almost been embarrassing to listen to the paucity of understanding in which these questions are coming from. There's no way that regulation is going to be matching what's happening, never mind being ahead of the game. So I think there's a real need for government regulators, people who can participate in some of these decisions to really up their game because they're way, way behind. But something that worries me even beyond that is this rush towards developing ever richer, more sophisticated AI. Because at some point, the AI becomes more sophisticated and powerful than our ability to control it. (laughs) It's 
And when AI starts coding itself, it becomes recursive. It can evaluate its own performance and adjust and code itself to become better and better. What we've seen in the labs is that software starts to take on properties that no human coder would ever have come up with. It comes up with its own ways of being able to optimize, as we said before in one of our conversations, its utility function. What is it trying to optimize for? And this is where if the institutional philosophy, the institutional reason that that the institution's there and seeking to optimize itself becomes the utility function of a hundred thousand times more sophisticated AI, it will probably find ways to achieve that against the interests of humans, no matter how much humans try to second guess it, because it, it will become more sophisticated. So rather than only, and I think we should do it, seek to find some ways to control this. One of the other ways of trying to address the same problem is is what you're saying. It's up to us to say, what are the values that we hold core and dear and sacred (laughs) that whatever we're building must acknowledge and support and be in service to? Because if we can establish those values then we don't need to know how the technology is doing what it's doing. If it's not in service of those values, it will become apparent and we can potentially introduce sanctions or do something about it. But we have to define what those values are and what kind of outcomes we seek to create through these new institutions so that the institutions can bend themselves to be in service of that, deploying whatever heavyweight AI they've got. So we, the people, need, as you say, to agree amongst ourselves and participate fully and deeply in that conversation. And it's it's going to be difficult and it's tough. We're never in human history have we had to contemplate this kind of conversation. Historically, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, what was sacred and valuable to us came from religion. We've got a challenge now that A, we have multiple religions (laughs) and a significant secular population. So what is the values that we can collectively agree on that serve as the guiding and orienting set of principles that can bring about a better 21st century and beyond? We've got a lot of thinking to do, and this is not just technologists and politicians, this is philosophers, artists, us the people participating in that conversation. For me, when we're talking about the psychological aspects of a shifting arena, there's the obvious feelings right now of disorientation, disenfranchisement, feeling unstable, not being able to see a clear path forwards. And I think if we don't engage and participate, whatever comes next is going to come unconsciously it's going to come from outside and affect us inside the arena is going to affect us in ways we can't really perceive right now because it's only becoming more and more interwoven in our lives especially in the digital sphere so to try and tie this all the way back to where we started with this the metaphors that we've used in our world to make sense of it have stripped us of our humanity thinking about us as machines as the world is a machine to extract from as the universe is essentially a clockmaker's universe now we're starting to think of things as programs as software as source code and and we're starting to project that onto our world and understand that maybe things can be shaped and changed 
I think the key takeaway is for agents to not let the arena shape you unconsciously. So to participate consciously in whatever way you feel you need to participate in order to shape the arena so that it enables human flourishing. The danger is going into a new arena unconsciously sleepwalking and allowing it to shape you in ways you're not even aware of. That's the thing that keeps me up at night. So I think for us, it's about determining how we can participate and what is the way to do that? How should we do that? And I think that's something that I really want to explore in our conversations. How do we participate? How do we effectively participate? I think that would be a really cool thing to dive into. And I think it is actually a really exciting and optimistic thing as well, because in the previous ways of seeing the world since the Industrial Revolution, Scientific Revolution, We've been diminishing our humanity and as a result, we've been withdrawing from the world and going into autopilot and having a materialistic framework for how we perceive the world and becoming consumers and users of technology. Where we are now with this uncertain, complex world, all of a sudden, we have a chance to stop withdrawing from the world and start entering into the world. We have a chance to start participating and really questioning and thinking and bringing our voices to the table. And I think that that's one of the most important things. And one of the biggest dangers is that only one voice gets heard. Only one perception gets heard. Only one way of perceiving the world gets fed into our arena. And what we need to do is ensure that there is a plurality of voices. There's a plurality of ideas. That ideas don't get shut down. That we're able to participate fully so that we don't wake up one day and think, how did we end up here? Mm. That's, that's a very good point. And it's coming right back to, I think, celebrate what it is to be human. And there are some parts of that that feel intrinsically true for those you love, for those you care about, whether it's your partner or your child or whether it's your parents or your best friends. So there's a, an instinctive, deep feeling of care, compassion, love and no matter what you believe in terms of religion the the golden rule seems to apply all the way through these different great religious traditions don't do to others you don't wish done to yourself the sense that ultimately we're all here on this planet spinning through the milky way all riding together on this little blue dot and the way that we continue to survive and flourish is going to be being curious, being compassionate, being caring, and showing a degree of love to ourselves and and each other. And I think some of those core foundational principles lie deep in the human condition and are something that can help us navigate through this future, recognizing that from wherever in the world we come from or whatever culture and tradition, there are many different ways of living, of expressing those values that are part of the wonderful richness of the human race. And finding some shared common principles around which we can all agree shouldn't be beyond us. How those get expressed brings together, as you rightly say, the full plurality of the human's experience, both now and what it can be. And there is work to be done to come together in ways that allow that plurality to express itself in the new forms of arena that gives us individual and collective possibilities. And that in some ways should be an exciting project for all of us. We don't have to be victims of the past and put up with that which we find around us today. There are many wonderful, amazing things that 
our ancestors and our ways of thinking have bequeathed us, but we're also in a changing world that asks us to step up in new and different ways to both sustain who we are today and make possible a life for our children and children's children yet to come. And we owe it to ourselves and to future generations to take this seriously because we are being called to step up in ways perhaps that history has never asked us or never required us to do, to curate and shape the form and nature of human civilization that future generations will hopefully benefit from. I think the thing for me now, which really gives me a sense of connection to the world and a sense of meaning, is understanding that we are in a relay race of humanity. There are generations upon generations of people that built the world that we're in today. And there are many more generations to come that are going to inherit what we leave them. So for me, I find it super meaningful that we are part of a story. You know, we are intrinsically connected to the world. And just understanding that and having that concept in my mind, we are part of this relay race of humanity. We are holding the baton right now. What are we going to leave to the next generations is something that makes me feel connected when they here and now to reality yeah and to go one step further we are as you rightly say holding the baton we're like stewards we don't own the world we don't own anything we're simply stewards of it for the next generation and it may be we are the only life in the entire universe if that is the case there's something amazingly wonderful about the fact that we exist at all (laughs) and as we develop ourselves to the next level we perhaps owe it to humanity and maybe the universe writ large that we don't mess it up that we can be a civilization that can transcend its own differences and contradictions to find a way to take life forward in this universe. Something that has, for me, sort of existential meaning over and above the personal meaning in the pursuit of my own life. So that's the end of episode four. If this was your first time tuning in, this is the point of the show where we try and sum up the episode. But this time, I feel we can only do that by raising some of the questions that came up in this conversation. It seems to us that the arena, the world that we're in, is, whether we're conscious of it or not, affecting our sense of self, affecting how we see ourselves and how we interact with our world. But how do you see it? Is there anything that we've missed here? Is there another way of looking at this? Are we looking externally for identity and validation rather than cultivating within us a rich inner life? Are we struggling to see ourselves in the things that we're building around us? Do we need to become more aware of what it takes to live well in order to not find ourselves living lives shaped by the interests of increasingly sophisticated forces operating in the arenas we inhabit? I guess if I were to bring up only one question that's worth pondering from this episode, 
it would be, what are some of the things in our lives that we might be adapting to badly? In other words, maladapting to. What might be some of the things that are influencing us that we aren't aware of? I know this has kind of been a running theme throughout the show so far, but I think it's worth bringing it up again with adaption and maladaption as a different frame of reference. As usual, we've dropped the links to the ideas and the people we discussed in this episode into the show notes, as well as our contact details. So there's plenty to explore until we next speak. And if you have any thoughts that you want to share, you can always ping us an email. If you want to support the show, the single best thing you can do is to share it with a friend. It really does make a big impact. Okay, let's wrap things up. It's been an absolute pleasure. Until the next time, take care.